0: everyone, welcome to the Rotten Horror Picture Show, the horror movie podcast where we talk about films off the Rotten Tomatoes 200 Best Horror Movies of All Time list. My name is Clay and with me as always is Amanda. How are you doing, Amanda?
1: Oh, I'm good. I'm uh, just trying to destroy my voice so that I can sound like a demon.
0: Well, apparently what you need to do for that is you need to start gargling raw eggs and (laughs) chain smoking cigarettes and drinking a shitload of whiskey. I mean uh, that
1: last one sounds fun, but the other two maybe not.
0: Yeah, well, you know, you drink enough whiskey, the other two are just you don't even notice them anymore.
1: (laughs) Yeah, burn off all your taste buds, and then you can gargle those raw eggs like a champ.
0: Yeah, it's like uh, I I always say. The most uh, (laughs) I, I I was going to say that's what Rocky did before he drank all those eggs is he would just chain smoke four or five cigarettes. And it just reminded me that the thing that I, the first time I saw this movie, the thing I found the most disturbing was the scene where the doctor just uh-huh. lights up a cigarette in yeah. in the hospital. The doctor <laughs> lights up a cigarette.
1: Yes. Different, in the hospital. Different Not times. Not outside the hospital. <laughs> no.
0: Different times we lived in. Can you believe that yeah. you used to be able to smoke on a plane?
1: I i know like we're we're old enough that when we were small small children there were lots of places you could still smoke mm-hmm. and even still it it blows my mind like even where i live because live and work because i work on a college campus that's a smoke-free campus like you don't even see people standing outside of buildings smoking in, in where where i'm at so it always throws me especially watching movies like this where everyone is smoking all the time. I'm kind of surprised Reagan doesn't bust out a pack.
0: Yes, Ronald Reagan does not smoke in this movie. (laughs) Uh, Of course, we are talking about, the movie we're talking about today is 1973's The Exorcist. And uh, before we get into that, I think we need to address the elephant in the room, which is that we might have, I, I, I think... I think we have a contender for worst placement on the list this is I think Ooh. this has bumped the shining uh-huh. off the top spot of of most egregious miss ranking because the it's- Exorcist, which is routinely listed by many people as the scariest movie they've ever seen it's always in mm-hmm. like the top ten best horror films of all time and all that kind of stuff yeah on our list it is number one hundred and twenty six
1: <gasps> what Yes. What? Wait. Where? Where's the? Where's the? Where is the Shining now?
0: The Shining is seventy-seven.
1: Okay. I mean, still not correct, but better. One twenty-six.
0: One twenty-six. It is uh, considerably lower than Zombieland, than what? Shaun, of, Shaun of the Dead, uh, than uh, the Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Then eraserhead attack the block, Halloween twenty eighteen. Yeah, it's um, it's a very it's a baffling, it's a baffling placement. Uh, it has I, a
1: that's upsetting.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> it has an eighty four percent Rotten Tomato score with an eighty seven percent audience score.
1: Huh, that's actually kind of lower than I expected for both of those.
0: It's lower, but it's closer. Like I, I feel like a lot of times yeah. they end up being polar opposites of each other but this one's like kind of in the pocket and i don't know if that's i don't know these movies i I have to imagine the reason that this is so low is just because there is so much having been written about it over the years that the uh the rating just isn't it, it has evened out more than some of the things that have fewer Reviews, if because I'm assuming that's how the algorithm works. I don't know why it does that, but
1: right or or like it's so overhyped that at this point there's enough people who've kind of said like everybody always said this was the scariest movie and I watched it and I thought it was boring and dumb.
0: Yes, well I was like going to ask of those you. Out there. I was going to ask you. Have you seen this before? Is that is that your feeling about this movie?
1: <laughs> yes, as everyone knows, I think this movie is boring and dumb. <laughs> no, um, I love this movie so much.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um I don't remember when I first saw it. I I I have a feeling and my mom listens to this podcast. So hi mom. Um Hello, she Mrs. will correct Amanda. me. <laughs> yes, that is her Christian name. Mm-hmm. Um I have a feeling this was one of the movies that it's not that we weren't allowed to watch it, but I feel like in my family my extended family especially, it would have been considered like poor taste because mm. I come from a very, very Catholic family. Mm-hmm. You and have uh, that, you have a hmm. Father
0: Marin in your family, no, a Father Karras in your family, don't you basically?
1: I mean, he's more of a Father Marin actually. Oh, yeah. okay, there you go. <laughs> my, my uncle Robert, a a tall gangly man who has traveled the world doing many interesting things oh, and is a go. priest.
0: Excellent. Yeah. Um, no
1: exorcisms that I know of, though.
0: Well, not yet.
1: <laughs> not that I know of. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, I... Uh, <clears throat> my introduction to this movie, I think I got like the... I don't want to say the perfect introduction, but Ooh. I hadn't seen this before the um, two, 2000 re-release. And it was kind of oh. one that I had... I, I was kind of just i was just getting into horror movies and stuff and 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 so right around this time and i was and i was uh going to church every week and Mm. this movie came back out into theaters and the pastor of my church actually during his sermon uh pleaded with people not to go see it oh wow because it's because of its content and because of its uh you know i don't know blasphemous nature i don't know i it it was it was something that was one of those things was like oh shit this is this must mean business and then i think
1: the perfect way to convince every person in the in the congregation under the age of like 30 to go Mm. see it oh yes
0: well i i didn't end up seeing it in the theater but i Mm. did uh end up seeing it ironically with a bunch of my friends from church so huh.
1: uh
0: and it was i thought it was <laughs> great perfect. Like it, it, you know it, it's it's one of those ones where i think the first time i saw it i liked it but it mm-hmm. didn't blow me away because you know it had been hyped up so much and you know there's there's talk of uh of all the things that happened in this movie and
1: sp- yeah spoken the sort very of like- hushed tones Right in the like apocryphal stories about people like fainting and running out of the theater. Right, and I actually stuff.
0: I have one of those in my own family. My mother oh. went to see this movie with my uncle Stephen, and apparently the scene this is he's not the only person this happened to. This apparently was was pretty common. Um, mm. The scene where Reagan gets uh, the thing in her neck at the hospital Ooh, and yeah. the blood starts spurting out.
1: Oh yeah. Apparently,
0: my uncle Steven either did faint or almost fainted.
1: I don't blame him for that one yeah that, they they do a really good job making that look realistic and little little tiny Linda Blair looks genuinely in distress during it I yes. can see why that freaked people out
0: yeah and so you know you have all that stuff kind of behind it before you're sitting yeah. down to watch it and then it's always gonna uh it, it's very much roller rollercoastery type thing where it's like the roller coaster seems really daunting and then you do it and it's like I yeah, wasn't too bad yeah, um,
1: <laughs> I think also if you see this when you're for the first time when you're a lot younger, some of the things for the first half of the movie will probably seem either confusing and or boring to you. Sure, like they they did to me the first time or two I, I saw this movie. It was always like fast forward through the first hour and then right. things start to pick up. And it's not until I got a little bit older and sort of started to understand a little bit more of like what the heck is happening at the beginning and why it's important. Right. I could like appreciate it more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, you know, I came away with it, like liking it, but not being blown away with it. And it wasn't until I had gone back and revisited it probably, I don't know, a year or so, a couple of years later that I Mm -hmm. really clicked with it. And was like, okay, this is, this is legitimately very good. This isn't just like a, a, a great scary movie. This is a legitimately good movie. Um, in a movie we are going to take a quick break and then come back and talk about. So be back in a second. Something beyond
1: comprehension is happening to a little girl on this street. In this house, a man has been sent for as a last resort to try and save her.
0: Okay, The Exorcist, 1973, directed by William Friedkin, the late, unfortunately, recently late, great William Friedkin, written by William Peter Blatty, adapted from his novel, starring Ellen Burstyn, Linda Blair, Lee J. Cobb, Jason Miller, Death Himself... uh, Jesus, I fucked that up. I was going to say Death Himself, Max von Sydow, but he plays chess against death. He isn't death. But he is... The voice of uh, Vigo the Carpathian in Ghostbusters too. Yes, I was gonna put that in, but I didn't want to do two voice things in a row because the last thing I have here is and the immortal voice of Mercedes McCambridge. Ah, uh, yeah. Amanda, what happens in The mm-hmm. Exorcist?
1: A girl gets possessed by an evil spirit. <laughs> <laughs> I told you i was gonna do it
0: yeah that is the uh that is the amazon synopsis of the exorcist is a girl gets possessed by an evil spirit i mean it's not wrong
1: yeah i mean you, that's pretty much all you need to know to go into this movie you're either interested in that plot or you're not
0: yeah what's the one what's the what's the the amazon summary for like dracula is it eastern european man visits london <laughs> <clears throat> Anyway,
1: God, God, I hope so. <laughs> well, Clay, mm-hmm. some things you'll find in this movie include yes, Captain Howdy, aka Pazuzu.
0: Yes, um, <laughs> Pazuzu is a great name that I'm glad nobody says in the movie because <laughs> yes. it's very silly.
1: <laughs> it just makes me. Did you Did you watch Futurama?
0: Uh, not really.
1: There's an episode in Futurama where one of the the the, the Doctor Farnsworth just shakes his fist and yells Pazuzu as a demon flies away. It's very good.
0: <laughs> there's also there's a, uh, a wrestling tag team, indie tag team, um, called Team Pazuzu.
1: Nice. That has nice, for it
0: at least one of them has uh, the 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 subliminal shot of the demon face.
1: on on
0: his knee pad
1: nice that's cool uh you'll also find a staple of every woman's wardrobe the sleep halter top
0: yes i i don't want to be presumptuous but that seemed like something (laughs) one might wear for the benefit of another person more than to be comfortable in at, at, at sleeping but i could be wrong
1: i i don't know why anyone would wear that (laughs) <laughs> to be honest.
0: Well, sometimes your front ha- front parts get cold and your back parts get warm.
1: <laughs> your back parts get hot and that's yeah. why you, you only need half a shirt. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Just, that's how why everybody in sleepaway camp wore those shirts.
1: That's actually weirdly true.
0: All the men in New Jersey in the, in the early <laughs> 80s the had men. very hot stomachs. <laughs>
1: Uh, you'll also find the Walt Disney version of the Ho Chi Minh story.
0: Yeah, I think the strangest bit of this movie and the, the part that even to this day, I've seen this a, a number of times. Mm-hmm. The thing that always stands out to me as being the most superfluous is the fact that she that um, Chris McNeil is filming a movie in Washington.
1: Yes. Yeah, she's it's a mo- it's a movie within a movie plot. And the movie has really nothing to do with anything.
0: Yeah. You only get one scene of her on set. And uh, you get some of the other supporting characters are crew members. There's uh, uh, Burke Dennings, who's the director, who ends up uh, Reagan throws out the window. Um, Is he also the one that Reagan says she thinks that her mother has the hots for? Yes. Yes. I don't get that at all, because that guy is a drunk who is not attractive.
1: <laughs> I think it's that he has a thing for Chris.
0: Oh, okay.
1: And she's nice to him. And so everybody kind of is like, I mean, if you like him. And she's like, I mean, we're friends.
0: Because this time. Just a nice person. This time I thought he was the one uh, who Reagan says, you're going to die up there too.
1: Oh, no, that's the astronaut. He's an astronaut? Yeah.
0: I, I completely missed that. Anyway, he seems like a better boyfriend <laughs> is my point. He seems like a much more <laughs> handsome guy. Who's got...
1: But he's going to die up there, like All right. You'll also find in this movie the real-life inspiration for the movie Cruising.
0: Yes. This is one of the more fascinating aspects of uh, lore surrounding mm. the movie The Exorcist. And I was very lucky enough... To, I, I'm sure I've told the story before, but it it is re- actually relevant now. Um, <clears throat> I was very lucky enough to, to see a screening of William Friedkin's Sorcerer, which was his follow-up movie to The Exorcist that completely bombed, even though it's a fantastic movie, and I highly recommend everybody see it. Mm-hmm. And he was there <clears throat> doing a Q&A afterward. And it was – I've been to a couple – Of these Q&A's and and they're always kind of weird people are always asking kind of weird questions and this one you would think okay Exorcist may probably get a bunch of Exorcist questions maybe get some French connection questions we had just watched sorcerer maybe some questions about sorcerer Mm -hmm. almost every question was about cruising to the point where he actually (laughs) stopped the Q&A and said do you guys just want me to tell you about cruising and everybody started clapping
1: And like, and so he's
0: like, okay, here's the story of cruising. And so he told the story, which, uh, from his point of view is that, uh, they wanted to make this movie cruising, which was about, which is a book about murders in the gay community. Mm -hmm. And they brought it to him and he wasn't really interested in it. And then, uh, he saw a news report about this guy named Paul Bateson. Who had been arrested for the murder of this of a guy named Addison Verrill. And mm-hmm. Friedkin realized he knew Paul Bateson. Paul Bateson is in The Exorcist and has lines in The Exorcist as the tech who helps perform the angiography, which is the thing where they put the, right. the thing into her neck. Yeah. And so he was kind of rattled by this. And so he actually went to Rikers Island and talked to Paul. And talk talked to him about it. And apparently uh, the other thing was that there was another string of killings in the gay community that was happening where uh, I think there were six murders, unsolved murders. And Mm -hmm. there and there were body parts that were washing up in the river, like the Hudson River in plastic bags. And uh, so they, this was going on and Bateson had been arrested for the murder of this, of this one guy. And uh, apparently the bags that they had found the body parts in on the seams of the bag said, uh, said like property of New York Medical or something, which was the place mm-hmm. where Bateson worked. And mm-hmm. so the cops pinned all of these other murders on Bateson and so when Friedkin went to talk to him he was like did you do this and he said I only remember killing one person and so according to Friedkin
1: (laughs) a very confidence inspiring statement (laughs) yes
0: according to Friedkin uh, he says Bateson was offered a lesser sentence if he confessed to the other murders Um, which I think is what happened if not I I believe those murders have, have gone unsolved and yeah,
1: I don't think he ever actually confessed. I think there's still, there's still cold cases.
0: Yeah. And so after talking with Bateson and learning that Bateson uh, frequented uh, a lot of the gay clubs in New York and kind of getting uh, getting into these other murders that had been going on in this, in this small community, he mm-hmm. reappraised the cruising novel and decided to make the movie Cruising, which is a, a, another very interesting movie that's worth watching and worth discussing. Because, like, man, talk about... Talk about a movie that could never get made today, at least not by oh, someone yeah. like Willy Fre- uh, Billy Friedkin. I think it's, I think it's a really interesting movie, and it has a lot of stuff in it that I think other movies have taken from. Like, I think there's a lot of uh, cruising in Zodiac. Mm. Um, but man, yeah, it's 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 one of those movies where uh, it got a lot of flack for uh, depicting the uh, actions and, and this gay culture in a certain way. But Friedkin was like, I w I didn't make any of this up. Like I, he, <laughs> he was friends with the guys who owned these clubs. And so he actually went to these clubs and was just shooting in the clubs. And so everybody who's in these movies doing the stuff they're doing is all just yeah. stuff. He got like basically documentary footage of. And so it's, it's a, it's a That's really crazy. interesting document of a very specific point in time. Um, that just, I, I, I mean, I don't know this for sure. I feel like it probably doesn't exist like that anymore, especially once you know AIDS <laughs> came out and everything. You know when AIDS came out on DVD. Yeah. <laughs> anyway.
1: Anyway, we still have some things you'll find in this movie. <laughs> there's Clay.
0: A, the point is, there's a real life murder, a possible serial killer in The Exorcist. Anyway, yes. go ahead.
1: Uh, you'll also find priest self-defenestration.
0: Yes, and what does that word mean? Because I didn't know.
1: Oh, just 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 chucking something out a window. Yes. Yes. Uh, you'll find one of the top 10 single greatest shots in movie history.
0: Yeah. Uh, there's the shot where Marin gets out of the car, which is the classic shot used in every promotional image of The Exorcist, has to be yeah. top 10, one of the most recognizable and iconic shots yeah. in any movie. It's 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 a perfect, perfect shot.
1: Yeah, it's so eerie. It's so good. I,
0: I believe, I'm not 100% sure because I didn't read through the all of the 150 trivia bits but i believe that they i think that they built the the facade of the front of that house like there it was an actual house that they built out to get that composition for that shot like the because if you look at the building the building's a little weird because it's like a house but it's got this flat brick part up top and and it's kind of got
1: the gate in the front
0: yeah yeah i think they i think they fabricated that for the for the movie
1: uh, and last, but certainly not least, you'll find uh, pretty good parenting, actually.
0: All things considered, probably some of the best parenting we've seen. <laughs> yeah. I
1: mean, Except when you, when for her you... dad.
0: Her dad seems to be a oh, scumbag. Yeah, yeah. But...
1: Well, we, we don't actually see him or what, what kind of parent he is, good or bad. We're assuming bad because he's absentee. But um, Ellen, Ellen Burstyn's character, Chris, is for all intents and purposes seems a really great caring mother
0: yeah and i think you know that might be a good place to jump into the actual uh discussion of the movie because i th- the thing that really makes this work <clears throat> on top of everything else of all the flashy stuff is mm-hmm. the time spent with reagan and her mother and the amazing performance from ellen burston and yeah. uh <clears throat> i think i think there's another way you could go with this where she's not that great of a mom and she, yeah. being an actress and being busy all the time, she's kind of brushing Reagan to the side. But that's really not how they're portrayed. She's portrayed as they're portrayed as having a pretty loving relationship,
1: which I think is like really refreshing. Not only because we specifically have done so many movies with questionable parenting, but because I think that's that kind of parent-child relationship where there's already tension in it has become so ubiquitous it's almost stereotype
0: right yeah
1: and it's sort of like a shorthand way of like creating conflict and adding tension without really having to earn any of it you just say like oh yeah teenage a teenage daughter and and her mom are butting heads because that's what teenagers and their moms do Mm -hmm. and instead in this it's like no they actually really enjoy one another and they have a lot of fun together and they clearly genuinely care for one another. It's it's actually kind of great to see, not only because it's a, a breath of fresh air, but also it makes what then happens between them so much more awful. Right. Like once Reagan starts really showing signs of of possession and does such charming things as cramming her mother's face into her bloody crotch. Yes. Uh, it really drives home how twisted and fucked up that is.
0: I bet Freud doesn't have a word for that. Maybe he does, <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I think it also. you also get great bits that I feel are very authentic where after that scene where Reagan is like, are you going to marry mr dennings or whatever and she's like okay. no I, I love your father i'll always love your father and like the next scene is her on the phone being yeah. like tell him he's a piece of shit because he yeah. won't call his <laughs> fucking daughter." <done."> which seems, yeah, seems it, very it uh very authentic
1: yeah and, it, and it's kind of like i think another way where it emphasizes that she is a good mom because in that second that second scene you're you're talking about where she's she's been trying to get the father on the phone because it's Reagan's birthday. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wish your daughter a happy birthday. You piece of shit. Um, she doesn't know that Reagan's listening. Right. Like Reagan, the the way, the way the scene is shot in the foreground, we see Reagan kind of leaning just out on uh, outside of a doorway Mm -hmm. on the wall. And her mom is like down the hall in the next room with the door open on the phone and she's getting upset, but she doesn't realize where Reagan is. So, like, when Chris talks about the father to Reagan, or when she knows Reagan's around, she doesn't shit talk him.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: It's when she doesn't she doesn't think she's there. So she can kind of let loose and be like this asshole. I hate this guy.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: But she's a good mom. She doesn't want to put her daughter in the middle of it. And she's trying not to sour the relationship between between them, which I think is. A nice subtle way of showing that like yeah she's human and she loses her temper but she she's trying to do what's best for her kid
0: mm, yeah and i i think what's what's nice is uh they 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 do this without drawing attention to it because every other possession movie i or poltergeist movie i feel like requires somebody to call this out but it's it's the thing where like Anytime you watch a documentary or something on these things, Poltergeist or whatever, they're always like mm-hmm. the perfect age for supernatural activity to pop up is is a girl who's going through puberty. And like oh, yeah. th- they always call that shit out. And in this one they don't call it out, but they do follow along that track where Reagan is in this we this certain point of her life where she's very much in transition. And clearly has a lot uh, she's dealing with, even though, you know, whether or not it's it's explicitly portrayed or not. And I, I saw Friedkin talking about it. And he said one of the things that they did was as she starts getting <clears throat> um, worse before she gets, you know, obviously demonically possessed, they mm-hmm. tried to set up little bits, uh, places where she could have uh, learned the behavior. That she's doing. So, for instance, like mm. after that scene where where her mother is calling her ex-husband a, a piece of shit or a fucking bastard is when they she's, Reagan starts using a lot more swear words and becoming a lot more angry. And like that kind of oh, thing yeah. where she's actually kind of taking on these negative things that she's coming across as someone who is the child of a divorced family who mm-hmm. probably is moving around a lot. She's on the cover of a, of a magazine, of like a tabloid. Uh, and it's it's a really nice, subtle way to portray Reagan as someone who is very much in flux and in the tradition of these stories might be open to, uh, I don't mean open like she's going to choose it, but just like she's an open vessel for the, the kind of demon that, that would come in and take her over.
1: Yeah, like like she's sort of uniquely vulnerable because of the place she's at in her life. Because, right. like her identity has been destabilized by the fact that she's growing up and, and she doesn't know who she's growing into, but she's probably not the little kid that her mom still sees her as. Like,
0: right, right.
1: There is that, when when they show her the magazine cover, Chris says, I don't like that picture of you. You look too mature. Right, yeah. And it's this like very kind of funny thing because I, I feel like we've all had those those family members who are like, when we, I think especially when you're a girl and especially when you're younger, there's this sort of accidental policing of what you look like. Like, you, sure, know, you look too sure. grown up for your age kind of thing. And it's like a very relatable moment and very much something you can understand why a parent would say that. Because they're, you know, she's looking at Reagan and still seeing a little, her little, her little girl, her of little course. little kid. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it, it kind of goes to this, depending on how you look at her, she's she's not anymore, really. Right,
0: yeah. She would be right in the crosshairs of everybody who works at sleepaway camp.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> but you know, I so I, I have not read the book The
0: Exorcist. I was going to ask I, if you had. I, I, I would be interested. I'm thinking I might, just for the hell of it.
1: Yeah, I I right now, really like to. Right now.
0: On Mike Page 1. It was the <laughs> best of times, it was the blurst of times. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Anyway.
1: Um I wonder how much um the author of the book um is he is he also a William? Is he
0: William Peter Blatty? Yes.
1: Yes, I kept wanting to call him Peter Blatty, but I was like I'm pretty sure he's a he's a William. Um I wonder how much in, in the book that sort of puberty trope appears because mm. i get the vibe that bladdy probably wouldn't really give a shit about that mm. <laughs> do you know what i mean like i i feel like he, he he's ext- he, he's very devoutly religious and i mm. think for him it's more of like using a character like reagan it's not that she's in this transitional period in her life or she's changing emotionally or physically. I I think she is like a symbol of purity and innocence to yeah, him. Yeah. And this is more of a like look what the devil can do. Look what evil can do. Like demons and, and Satan are real and they can corrupt even the most seemingly incorruptible amongst us, an innocent child. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's more the interest for him than the like Growing up in the in and and puberty kind of subtext.
0: Yeah, I I don't think you're you're probably not wrong because I I, I feel like uh, everyone who I've seen talk about it or Blatty and Friedkin and you know other places say that the movie's not about Reagan. It's about Karis, and the mm-hmm. the demon's target is is the demon's target isn't Reagan. The demon's target is Karis, <clears throat> and uh, and so I, I I could see him. Mm-hmm leaning more into that battle than uh, than the uh, teenage girl stuff uh, because yeah. as an older Catholic man, he might not have the same <laughs> frame of reference for 13-year-old <laughs> girl stuff.
1: Well, yeah, because I, I, I do think, and I think especially back then, the line between childhood and adulthood was a lot sharper in a lot of ways like nowadays i feel like we have all of these like categories and subcategories for youth and and young adulthood like you're a kid and then you're a tween and then you're a teen and then you're like college age where you're a young adult you're not really an adult yet but you're definitely not a kid and then you're out of college and and you're sort of an adult now but you're not really
0: yeah (laughs) like
1: we, we break it down into these much more like nuanced buckets and, and, and transitional periods in, in life. But I think, you know, for much more of modern understanding, an 11 or 12 year old was just a child that that's just a kid.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Not the Ted Nugent. Um, <clears throat> <clears throat> I, I can't, you know, that came across my, my, my desk the other day. Uh, and i had forgotten about that and it's one of those things that i i'm I, I feel like a lot of people have forgotten about that about the fact that ted nugent um had a family sign over conservatorship of their 13-year-old daughter to him so he could have sex with her so uh yeah. just want to make sure everybody out there knows that cuz he's a piece of shit Put that anyway back in there. yep um <clears throat> yeah i i think i think the stuff with them is great uh what's what's really funny sort of is uh, Blatty was actually more well known as a comedy writer before this. He had worked with Blake Edwards, who did the Pink Panther, oh. and uh, we know you and I know Blake Edwards as the as the the auteur behind uh, what the hell is the name of that movie with uh, where they switch bodies after the guy gets killed.
1: Oh, sh- <laughs> the switch.
0: The switch one of the more <laughs> batshit cra- yeah i know one of the more crazy movies i've seen in a while um, but yeah so this was i guess he was saying when he first wrote this people were expecting it to be a comedy and were very much surprised that it wasn't um,
1: that's really interesting that reminds me of um the the current modern day incarnation of that kind of person which is craig mazin the guy who who did uh, the chernobyl miniseries oh, sure. and more recently the last of us who was originally kind of known as like the script doctor for, like, sequels and and tr- and tr- trilogies of of comedy movies.
0: He did the Hangover, didn't he? Is that yeah, him? Yeah, he did
1: the Hangover, like two and three. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. People eh. contain multitudes, I guess.
1: <laughs> like Reagan. <clears throat> yeah. Hey.
0: Um, what I think one of the things that makes this work really well is freaking shooting style which is very Mm. uh, documentary influenced he's got this great ability to and he does this in uh, the French Connection he does this in Sorcerer uh, he does it in Cruising he's got this great ability to shoot a fictional movie that has documentary feeling to it but doesn't feel Mm -hmm. like it's trying to be a documentary if that makes sense
1: yeah, it does, and I and I think coupled with that, he gets very, what's the word, naturalistic yes. performances out of actors. I I think he does a really good job of keeping people grounded in in a level of realism, even when things around them are going really far off the rails.
0: Yeah, he's he's a, 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 a he, he was a huge stickler for realism, um, and the movie starts, uh, uh, of course, with Marin in Iraq uh mm-hmm. doing on a archaeological expedition which they shot in Nineveh. At, in Nineveh yes which they shot at an actual archaeological uh, dig in Nineveh so I mean you can't yeah. you can't you can't buy that kind of production design but like a, a lot of the, most of the stuff in in Iraq is just on the street filming it, it's not actors it's just so cool. Max Sydow interacting with the people uh in the, in the town in the marketplace. know, um, he talks a lot about finding, he calls them grace notes, like little, little bits that mm-hmm. aren't, aren't in the script that you just stumble into that really kind of bring certain scenes to life. And he, he talked about how the scene where Merrick just walks through that sort of, uh, I don't know if it's, it's not quite underground, but it's, it's a little market that has that is enclosed with the sun coming through. And it's just like yeah, a beautiful like a little sequence. Yeah. and that was not something they planned he just saw that place and he's like all hey, right max walk through here and it's just a nice yeah, that's, little that's bit okay. of uh, a little bit of um, what's the word I'm looking for uh, and my brain's gone gone dry <laughs> it's it's just like a little it's a it's a little bit of uh, uh, gives a little bit of extra juice to the to the environment and stuff and he continues that through the movie with The hospital stuff where most of the people in those sequences are actual doctors and even in the church stuff most of those people are actual priests they're not actors and it does add this really interesting layer of uh, reality to it that I mean especially in horror movies especially at this time you are not getting.
1: Yeah, wasn't even um, Father Karras' mother? Wasn't she just kind of a? a they, they sort of stumbled upon her in like yes. in a Greek restaurant.
0: Yeah, yeah. That, that yeah.
1: She she was just sort even, of serendipitously found.
0: Even um, Jason Miller, he this was his first movie, and I, I believe he was more well known as a playwright than he was as an oh. actor, and I guess. Uh, they had already cast the part for Karis. It was going to be an actor named Stacy Keach, who you might, if you don't know him, you you'd probably know him if you saw him. Um, he's kind of a mm. Powers Booth looking guy. Oh. <laughs> and uh, I guess Miller got his hands on the script, and he he talked to Fre- Friedkin. Had what gone to see his play or something, and he said, "You have to cast me in this because this character is me." Because I guess he was. I don't know if he was actually a priest. Or if he mm. was studying to be a priest, but he was a someone who had been struggling with their own faith for a long time, and wow. Friedkin was like, "No, nah, I mean, we already cast the role. I'm sorry." And he's like, "No, you don't understand. You have this. You have to let me play this part." And so finally, he said, "Okay, we'll do a screen test. It's not going to for anything. We already cast the role. This is just to do it." And so Friedkin shot a screen test of Jason Miller doing the um catholic mass mm. and he said <laughs> he said something to the effect of once once i finished shooting it and i saw the dailies i turned to the next person next to me and said someone call stacy keach and tell him he's fired there's something like oh, that shit. but it, 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 what they ended up doing is they ended up paying him his whole salary to to have him walk away so they could hire jason miller to to play this role
1: wow i, w- I wonder how he feels after that, you know, like yeah. when this movie became such a huge phenomenon, like, do you feel, I mean, obviously you feel a level of regret, like that should have been me, but at different points in your career, are you kind of like, man, I'm sort of glad I didn't mm-hmm. take it because then you'd be so pigeonholed into that, that role. Like everyone would see you as father Karis.
0: Yeah. I, I don't think he would have been that good, honestly, because Stacy Keach has a little bit too much gristle on him like he he does hmm. kind of fall in that same category as like a Powers Booth or an Ian McShane I'm just pulling Deadwood actors off the top of my head because I'm watching yeah. the show like for instance <laughs> he's in um, Escape from L.A. in the role oh. that Levian Cleef played in the original Levian Cleef being the classic western you know squinty eyed tough guy so Stacey Keach yeah. has like that kind of energy which I don't think is Father oh, Kara's okay. energy at all
1: yeah, which which is interesting. Like I wanna I wanna talk a little bit about Father Karis while yeah, we're while it. we're on him. Because I find him such a fascinating character. Mm. Like he's he's so gentle seeming. Like when he talks to Chris, even when he disagrees with her and upsets her and she starts kind of yelling at him, he never gets angry or upset back. He's very He's like a very calm presence. He's very even keeled, even as he's going through this like deep crisis of faith and this deep amount of grief over his mother dying in, you know, kind of kind of impoverished circumstances. And I don't know. I, f- I find him also even the fact that that he's Greek, but he's a Catholic priest. Mm. And not a greek orthodox priest is really interesting so it's it's
0: i, I know is, you know not
1: just mm. sorry
0: i was i was i know the mother is the actress is greek but i i guess i always just yeah. read them as italian but that's probably just me being mediterranean racist i guess
1: yeah <laughs> hey at least you admit it on on a recording that's going to go out into the public listen
0: i love the food but the people are trash is what i'm saying <laughs>
1: spoken like a true mccormick (laughs) um but like that's interesting because you know i i I don't pretend to know what percentage of greek people are catholic i know that there are greek people who are catholic Mm -hmm. but i think it's more unusual so you're kind of an outcast in your own community just based off Mm, of that yeah and then he's a psychiatrist, and and he talks to Chris about how he he was sent to all these different schools. He name drops like Harvard and I think Johns Hopkins and um and a, and a couple others, and so he's very like science based, but he's he's the psychiatrist for the other priests, right? I don't know. I just I think he's like a character that's kind of full of contradictions and. He's a boxer too. Like there's there's pictures of him like like as though he kinda like won boxing matches mm-hmm. in his mother's apartment. So it's I don't know. He's he's a really fascinating character who's hard to figure out. And I think it makes his final role in the exorcism itself. I don't know like like almost harder to understand. Like he he never really has a a a full I believe again moment. Right. Like he never, in in fact, his faith is so shaken and and his own like emotional and mental fortitude is so weakened that father Marin's going to get rid of him. He's just like, get out. You can't, you can't handle this. Right. Yeah. I'll do it myself, which is against the exorcism rules, by the way. (laughs) Right. Um, You're supposed to have two priests, not just one.
0: Just in case um, one of them dies from a heart attack in the middle of it, like Marin does.
1: That's actually the reason. Is it really? Yeah, yeah. You have two priests in case one of them dies during this era, during the the ritual. Yeah,
0: you got to finish the ritual. That's the thing. Uh, the, yeah. the number one rule about ma- magic rituals: you got to finish the ritual. Otherwise, close all the
1: doors you open.
0: Yep, exactly.
1: <laughs> but yeah, that's, he, he never. That's actually he, that he phrase.
0: Has. When uh, every time. Someone closes a door, God opens a window, whatever it is He's actually, it's actually talking about exorcism rights in that instance. <laughs>
1: um, but yeah, K- Karis never has a, a, a kind of relighting of his faith. In a weird way, you can sort of read what happens as him kind of giving up. Like yeah, that's like interesting. He's out of options. Yeah, kind of. He he's he's in like a desperate place, and he doesn't have the strength and his faith in God to be able to just cast the demon out. So he has to resort to this sort of like abominable choice of damning himself in order to save someone else because he can't do the full ritual.
0: Yeah, that that is interesting because I I feel like the the popular reading of of this at least the reading that is the counterpoint to well the Exorcist is a movie a blasphemous movie that's about evil is that mm. it is about Karis who has a, a, a who has lost his faith finding it again and good triumphing over evil and I don't know, I'm kind of on the same page as you were. I don't know if I can 100% yeah. say that I agree with that, at least not in the way... I mean, we may as well, since we're kind of dancing around it, let's just get into the, the ending, because I, I, Friedkin and Blatty were very... Um, they butted heads quite a bit about the ending, and like Friedkin did mm. not know how to end the movie. and I And I understand, because I don't know how you... Given all the things that you have set up and, and followed through in this movie, I feel like Karis all of a sudden just uh, taking up taking up the cross of his dead mentor and with the light of God shining down in his head saying the power of Christ right. compels you and then the, the devil just goes away. It feels really uh, cheap, you know, like that doesn't feel yeah. like in line with this movie at all. But on the the other hand, it's tough to defend that ending as this being like this great triumph for for good when the the thing that gets the demon out of her is Karis just beating the shit out of her
1: <laughs> yeah just like punching a child yeah. in the face
0: we were we, i was joking around last <laughs> night say because there's a new mm-hmm. one coming out that um david gordon green is doing and david gordon green he did the the most recent halloween trilogy and he mm-hmm. is one of the creators of righteous gemstones and vice principles with danny mcbride and i was saying man if the priest in his exorcist is jesse gemstone Sign me up because the first thing he's doing is he's pulling a gun. You want to talk about possession? How about possession of a dangerous weapon, motherfucker? That'd be the first thing he says. And once he starts, he would go, he wouldn't even do the rights. He would just start beating her up. And apparently that works.
1: 12 year old child or not. (laughs) But yeah. And also like the, the thing about faith is that you don't have evidence to right. back up your belief. Right. Once you have evidence, it stops being faith and just starts being fact. Like, so, so, Karis has to kind of see not only Reagan's behavior when she's being possessed, that doesn't even convince him. When, mm. when, when Father Marin shows up, Karis is still talking about multiple personality disorder and, like, medical symptoms and and treatments and Marin's just like no there there is no other personality there's there's one and it's a demon and we're gonna get it out of her right and so even seeing her sort of like overt symptoms isn't enough to convince him that something supernatural is happening here it's not until they start doing the exorcism rites and she's like channeling his dead mother and she's levitating off the bed fully and her head's turning all around backwards i'll tell you
0: the the first time i saw this the scariest shot in the movie was for me when was when karis walks in and reagan has turned into his mother and they oh yeah light coming down i that like really freaked me out the first time i saw it
1: for me there's something about when uh when she's sitting up in the bed and her head turns backwards and she's speaking in Burke's voice. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that one, when I, when I first saw it really got me, I I think it's something about like the placement of her body. When that, when Mm. that scene happens, like the way her legs are kind of stuck straight out on the bed and then her (laughs) head is turned around like that, that image stayed with me for a long time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's full, it's full of, full of that stuff. Um, obviously, uh, But yeah, it's it's. I guess uh, the ending, uh, a place where Freakin and Blatty disagreed quite a bit was originally, Karis throws himself out the window while he's still possessed, mm. and Blatty said, "No, we need to have we need to show that he's has control and that he that Karis is choosing to do this because otherwise it looks like the the demon wins, and." Mm. I don't disagree with him. I just don't know what it means based yeah, based on the things the themes and stuff they've been playing with that Karis has regained his own uh sense of self long enough to hurl himself out a window.
1: To self defenestrate, if you will. Yes. Um it's it's also it's interesting because I think
0: I love that there's a I word think... for throwing something out a window. <laughs>
1: I don't remember if it's a window specifically. I think it's an opening. Either way. Yeah, but it's it's throwing something through some sort of opening. From a height, I believe, but I could be wrong. Um,
0: That's actually the original name for basketball was just defenestrations. Team-based defenestration. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> didn't catch on quite as much.
1: Basket defen- defenestration. Um,
0: that sounds it sounds like someone team-based or basket defenestration sounds like the medical examiners uh the coroner report for like a murder victim or something Well, they died of yeah. basket defenestration <laughs> oh my god or
1: like some some weird like lumbar injury or something yeah um
0: multiple defenestrations to the upper <laughs> thorax because it's a bug i, I, I guess I... <laughs>
1: I think I think the ending is have it, having Karis take the demon into himself and then have that last moment of self-control and then killing himself, I think is supposed to be read as like kind of an ultimate sacrifice. Mm. not only in the sense of he's losing his life, obviously, but he's given up salvation for his immortal soul because a he allowed a demon to possess him but also b if he's the one in control he's committing suicide and suicides don't go to heaven in in like very traditional christian belief systems like a suicide is a sin against god because you're you're taking away the life god gave you and and that's a sin and therefore you don't get to go to you know eternal paradise you i think in some christian constructions you go to a version of purgatory and in others you just go to hell
0: well they actually have a sidestep around that as well which makes things a yeah. little bit more continuously confusing uh the scene where uh father dyer is with him as he's right. dying on the floor, on the ground he's giving yep. him the last rites, and apparently right. the fact that he has enough strength to like squeeze Dyer's hand is mm-hmm. I, on the commentary Freakin' was saying that is indication that he has, he is uh, um, um
1: like competent enough to, yeah. And that
0: he has, uh, uh, what's the fucking word I'm looking for it. Um, not, not he's not, he's not absolving himself. He's confessing his sins, basically whatever the mm. word is there. So he's actually yeah. being active in, in, uh uh, his absolute absolution you know what i mean
1: got it yeah huh interesting i I wonder i wonder if in in real life catholicism if that would stand up i imagine it would
0: yeah i don't know i don't know i haven't seen the rule book (laughs) it's
1: a Uh, very long rule book yeah
0: lots of (laughs) names yeah. I never got past. <laughs> so-and-so I tried and so
1: begat so and so. I tried
0: to read so-and-so. the Bible twice, and both times <laughs> I stopped at the name section. I feel like the name section is in there specifically <laughs> to 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 weed out the people who who aren't gonna who aren't gonna take this seriously.
1: Yeah, yeah. As soon as you get through that section, it says, "Now that all the weaklings are gone, yes, let's we talk. We get down to the real business. But, here's how you live forever."
0: But before we do that, here's a bunch of cool action sequences that take place in Israel. Yeah.
1: Right. Um, <laughs> Some of them in Nineveh.
0: Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I think it's a really, it's an ending that I, I think you can really kind of take your own, uh, inter- interpretation of. Uh, sure. Because, and uh, part of me feels like, I don't know if that's by design or if it's just because they don't entirely know what their ending means that they're kind of yeah. just like, Yeah, I find it to be in line with the way a lot of the rest of this movie plays, which is even I think even now still can be disorienting because. Oh, yeah. um, Freedkin's not really giving you a lot of he's not really holding your hand for much of this movie. So there's a lot of like uh, time and environment or location jumping that he is not telling you what's happening. So for instance, yeah. it took me a long time to realize that Karis' Karis's mother lives in New York. They never say it's New York. They just show that it's New York because of uh, the subway system and mm-hmm. like the brownstones that she lives in. But they never talk about the fact that she... I think maybe once they they mention that she lives in New York like offhandedly after she's died or something. But,
1: right, right. Like, oh, Father Carris had to travel to New York. You know, his right. mother died, or something like that.
0: But they're they're not calling that out, really, to tell you that they're changing locations. It just seems like, well, I met we met Carris in D.C. I guess he right. must still be in D. And your brain isn't really, unless you're really paying attention, your brain's not really registering the fact that he's just gone to New York for the weekend. Right. Um. And there's a lot of that in there. Like when they get into the. Hospital stuff, I think one of the things mm-hmm. that's so freaky about the hospital stuff is they're not stopping to tell you what they're doing to her. They just show it to you. And right. this time I noticed that there's, there's a certain uh, – something about the medical tests that they're running feels – almost ceremonial in the same way that the exorcism does at the end the thing that stood out to me the most was i don't know if it's the mri machine i don't know what the hell it is the one that's like really loud and like spinning around her head
1: yeah i I think that's a version of like an mri early mri yeah
0: i was looking at that and it, it just like triggered it registered in my head as like almost a a pagan ritual like they they would show in like a movie about voodoo or something where someone is chanting over someone's body shaking like yeah. a, a bone necklace or something like in that moment it felt as uh silly and pagan to me as anything else would and it's right. and,
1: and, and probably from Reagan's point of view either one of those options or the exorcism itself is they're all going to be equally incomprehensible to her yeah. because like you said no one's like stopping to explain Here's what we're doing, here's why we're doing it, here's the result that we're hoping to see. Like she's just put under the power of these adults and then has to just kind of lay there and allow these things to happen to her.
0: Right. Yeah. It's there there's that stuff seems like as much of an exorcism as the actual exorcism does.
1: Yeah, and I I have to say that like, um, what it, what it, what is she she has like an like an angiogram and ar- or something
0: mm-hmm.
1: with the um and, the blood spurting out and, and they have to kind of insert something
0: It's an angiography, I believe it's called. Oof.
1: Oof. <laughs> so like this summer I had to have an arthrogram MRI on my shoulder where they injected dye into my shoulder and then stuck me in an MRI machine and and the dye allowed them to see more of whatever the hell was happening in there.
0: What Arthur was doing? and Huh? What Arthur was doing?
1: Yes, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Arthur, the little man who lives in my mouth. Um, no, but I thought that was kind of daunting and uncomfortable and, and scary. And then seeing the 1973 version of that, but also on your brain, yeah. I was just like, yeah, I can see why people fainted during this part of the movie.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I think that that whole sequence, if you are a younger person and have or don't have a certain set of life experience, I think mm-hmm. that that whole section can come off as kind of boring. And it's like, oh, get to the, you know, it was the demon movie, you know? Yeah. But I think once you have been in a situation where there's something wrong with you and no one can figure out what it is. Or more importantly, mm-hmm. if you have a, a, a loved one who's in that situation, that stuff gets yeah. so much more tense and so much more trying on, on, on your, your, your psyche to go through, you know?
1: Yeah. Because there's the feeling of helplessness yeah. and, and confusion. You really, even if things have been explained to you, if you've never had to go through something like that before, like you, people can tell you, like when I had this procedure done on my shoulder, it was explained to me like four times. Mm -hmm. Like my, my PT doctor explained it to me. My orthopedic doctor explained it to me. They explained it to me when I got in there. And then everybody, as they were doing the different steps was telling me what they were doing Mm. and, and explaining kind of what was happening. And it was still, really daunting and terrifying and and kind of hard to hold all of this information in your mind when you're going through something that's that tense and stressful. So I think especially when it has to do with the human brain, it really adds another level of terror because it's kind of like, they keep telling her don't move. And you think like, well, if she moves, is she just going to screw up the picture that they're getting or... (laughs)
0: Right, is right. she
1: gonna cause them to like poke something in her brain and then like ugh? It's it's really freaky when you think about it.
0: Yeah, my dad was uh, was doing a um uh, a medical study a couple of years ago, and that required mm-hmm. him to do an MRI and and he was in the machine. And he's like, it was uncomfortable enough as it was because you can't move and he's in a really uncomfortable position. Then he said, right. and then my back started to cramp. And I couldn't Ooh. do anything about it. And so he's laying there in the machine having to keep still while his back muscles are just like s- twisting like they're wringing out a rag. Yeah. And he was like, it's the most uncomfortable I've ever been in my life.
1: Yeah, Jesus. <clears throat>
0: um, what do you think of uh, Marin?
1: <laughs> well, I've already explained to you that he reminds me very much of my uncle. Yes. So. I I have, I have a warm, warm feeling towards Marin. Um, I think, well, first I'll say, I think Max von Sydow is just such a fantastic actor that nothing I can say is going to be enough. (laughs) Um, so there, there's he, Marin, the character has that going for him, that he's portrayed by somebody who's so, so good at his craft. Mm. Um, I really, I really like the character of Marin because he's so separate from the rest of the movie. Mm. Like, there's something mysterious about him. Like, why, even though he's a priest, is he out on archaeological digs?
0: Sure, yeah.
1: What, what, is it just academic? Is, is he looking for specific types of artifacts? Is, like, what... What is going on with that? And, and Trying to find the one of those Pazuzu
0: that... statues with the giant wangers on them. <laughs> they don't bring a lot of attention to it. But that Pazuzu statue is a huge let No, they, they, let, it, they let
1: it speak for itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you hear the story, um, and I have no idea how true this is, but the but the story that um, they shipped that statue to, uh, they tried to ship it to Iraq and it got lost in the mail. No. No. And it got sent to like Australia or oh, something, geez. and some poor unsuspecting person in customs opened it up. <laughs> <laughs> it was just face to face with that giant, giant dong. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I I like Marin because because of the mystery. I think like they they don't they don't come in and, and give him some sort of tragic backstory. They don't elaborate too much on like why do they think of him right away when when there's potentially an exorcism to be done
0: they mention like, that he has experience with it because that's basically the only bit of backstory you get on marin is that he was involved right. in an exorcism in africa or something like 20 years ago
1: right and, and and you have to assume that it went well if they want him to do it again. i guess yeah yeah, so like you're, you're sort of like, teased unless like, the
0: unless the exorcist is like a weatherman where it's like yeah, yeah, yeah it only works like fifty percent of the time but that's, <laughs> that's that's a pretty good ratio for an exorcist. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, so you're, you're you're sort of teased out that he has probably had a very fascinating life, mm. but they don't go into it, and I think when when you look at him. I think especially coming from like a, a Catholic background, he's like the sort of priest you would want to have. Mm. You know, like, like if you're going to go and confess to somebody, you you want it to be somebody who feels almost mystical in a way. Like, like you can kind of believe that this person has a special relationship with God. He doesn't feel just like an average person. Yeah. So having him come in to do this ceremony Gives it more gravitas and impact, I think.
0: Yeah, I guess. Um, I guess they were originally the studio wanted Marlon Brando to play that character, Bleh. but uh, Friedkin said no because he was too much of a presence that it would turn the movie into a Marlon Brando movie.
1: Yeah, I get that.
0: Um, and I think Max von Sydow is, is the perfect kind of actor to bring that gravitas, but he's someone who at that point probably isn't super well known in America. I mean, as we were, we were talking about last night we were watching, we couldn't believe, uh, he's only 44 here. The, the The old age
1: makeup in this movie on him is, I, I, it's, it's so good. Like I was convinced that he was in his seventies in the seventies. And when I saw him in a movie in like the two thousands, I briefly, Believed in immortality. I was just like, <laughs> "How is this man still alive? He's one hundred and forty years old."
0: For fifty minutes, <laughs> like, you thought there were there was immortals on the earth,
1: and I thought Max von Sydow was one of them. Yeah. And I was I was ready to believe because the 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 age makeup in this is so good and
0: even so well done. W- w- you know, we I watched it streaming in HD on Amazon on a big screen, and it still looks good. Like it it there's right. so, a lot of times that stuff kind of breaks down the illusion for old age makeup but it still looks yeah. really good even still now
1: in in one of the one of the Blade Runner the Blade Runner sequel I think they put uh, someone in oh in uh, t-
0: Prometheus they there put, it is. Uh, guy wanna, Pierce in
1: there you go Thank hilarious you.
0: <laughs> old age makeup for no reason
1: i I'm glad that I had the wrong movie. And I was about to say Jared Leto, which was the wrong actor, and you still got it. You still got me there. Oh,
0: Thank you me. know, they did also, Jared Leto is in Blade Runner 2049, but I don't think he's in old age makeup. I think yeah, he's just Yeah, I think I'm conflating. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's one of the more baffling choices. Because when you see a younger actor clearly in old age makeup, that means at some point, you are going to see the younger version of the actor, but they don't mm-hmm. do that in Prometheus. It's just Guy no, Pierce in old age makeup. <laughs> and I, I think I, I heard somewhere, I don't know if it was on the commentary for that or, or something, that it wasn't It wasn't like they had cut some scenes or anything. It was just that Guy Pierce wanted to work with Ridley Scott. And they're like, all right, we'll throw him in this character. What the hell?
1: Yeah, yeah, he'll just make him the old man. <clears throat> um, um,
0: yeah. But
1: Ma- Max von Sydow does a good job, I think too, of moving like mm. he's older. Like, he doesn't over exaggerate it, but there is a certain kind of I don't know, almost unsteadiness at times where he's trying to like climb the hill on on, on the excavation site and yeah. he seems like he has to kind of be a little more a little more considerate about where he's kind of placing his feet and like how he's doing it. But it's not it doesn't come off as like cartoony. I think I think it's well done.
0: Right, yeah. You know, they I guess um <laughs> Freakin was saying that When he was bringing the when people were reading the script, the same the same thing everybody said to him was, "Well, you're going to cut the Iraq sequence, right?" Like everybody, even Blatty was like, "I assume we're going to cut the Iraq stuff," and he was like, "Absolutely not," because that sets the entire tone for the whole thing. And it also it that scene allows you to not have to explain much about Marin because you introduce him in the and in that scene too. They're not he's not, you know, feeding you this information about him. It's just there's a general unease about what Marin's doing and the things he's finding in that yeah. weird standoff that he has with the Pazuzer statue where it's like, OK, yeah. something's going on between <laughs> these two guys. Not right, really sure like what dogs, that
1: is. There's like stray dogs fighting at the foot of the statue and there's armed guards guarding the excavation site it's it's like okay something uncomfortable is happening here
0: yeah and it's the kind of thing where when he comes back at the end you kind of get this sense that he's fighting the demon that he knows even though they never say that once in the entire like i always got the that was always the impression that i got was like oh yeah well this is the demon from the beginning so, oh, right, of course, right. he's either
1: hunting out. through the world or has somehow accidentally released and therefore this is his
0: Oh, I never considered that, yeah.
1: I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know.
0: He seems like, I mean, with all that digging mm-hmm. that he does, he might have unearthed some sort of Necronomicon and let Pazuzu out. Pazuzu. <laughs> um, <laughs> we should talk about uh, Reagan in her yes. more garish, ghoulish form.
1: Linda Blair is so good in this.
0: She is. I I don't want to take anything away from her cuz obviously her performance is great, like especially when they really get her juiced up at the end. Yeah. The 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 fact that they got her to to do some of that just like staring off into the distance stuff is just it's 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 really unnerving.
1: Right, and I know I know they eventually use the amazing voice actor for the demon's yes. voice. But she still delivers the lines when they're filming. Yes. And I read something somewhere where <laughs> Max von was so disturbed yep. by what she was saying that he, he forgot his line.
0: <laughs> it's it's funny though, because like, it, it really is the sum of all the parts that create the magic. Because I don't know if you've seen the clips of her saying some of those lines without the the voiceover but it's got a it's got a it's got big uh peter mayhew in the chewy costume before they put the chewy noises on top of his voice energy or like david Proust sure. saying the darth vader lines because it's because yeah. it's always it's like her laying there and just hear karis your mother sucks cocks in hell and it's, yeah. ju- it's just it doesn't have the zip obviously and so it's not until you layer on this uh, horribly tortured performance from almost literally from Mercedes McCambridge that it all really starts to sing. I yeah. guess apparently uh, Linda Blair got nominated for an Academy Award for this. And it wasn't oh, wow. until after she was nominated that the Academy realized that wasn't her because I guess Mercedes oh. McCambridge was not credited by her own request on the, on the initial prints of the film. And oh, so wow. – They just assumed that it was, I don't know, audio trickery or something. Right, but But, but that it
1: was her voice underneath, Linda Blair's voice underneath it all,
0: yeah. But apparently it is uh, the uh, procedure of the Academy that they they will not rescind a nomination. Uh, And so all of that sort of kind of they're saying one of the reasons why she probably didn't win was because mm. it was like, Oh, she's up there, but does she deserve to be up there? You know, that kind of bullshit. But
1: right. Right. Sort of like if it's, if it's a combination, if the performance itself is a combination of different actors, then how do you, yeah. How do you credit one over the other? Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. But I mean, her, the stuff that they do with her is, is abs- is still unbelievable. It's, the makeup, the uh, makeup is by Dick Smith, who is the master of movie makeup. I think, you know, as great as the people are who came after him, he was uh, Rick Baker's teacher. Um, mm. I, I, Dick Smith is like he was the guy, you know, he, he did. Yeah. He did some of the best stuff that's ever been done <clears throat>
1: Yeah, because the makeup in this, um, you know, we were talking about the old age makeup, but the makeup on Reagan like when Reagan's the demon, it is still disgusting yeah. looking. Yeah. And and like you were saying, even on the big screen HD TV, like, like it still looks gross when she's full Pazuzu.
0: My, my favorite shots are when her eyes go white are great. And I, I also mm. love when she's just sort of like, writhing around and the and the green stuff is just like slowly oozing out of her mouth those that's the best one yeah i love that
1: (laughs) and they get it all over the priest's stole and they have to like run into the bathroom to do some laundry real quick
0: and you know the, the thing that's so amazing or the thing i love about her demon makeup is um it is insane and it is intense But they never really go too far away from her actual features. Like there's Mm. the tendency now is to, you know, everybody's got to have these giant brow pieces and really sharp, jagged, demonic looking cheekbones and stuff. And it always kind of takes me out a lot of the times when they do that stuff. But here they you can still see Reagan's face. They don't like really distort her her cherubic kind of look too much. Yeah. And so it really it really uh, makes it pop.
1: Right, and it makes it all the more terrifying conceptually because when you're looking at her you can still see a little girl in there. Right, it's yeah. not like just fully this this completely grotesque monster with like sharp teeth and and extra eyeballs or or whatever. It's like no, she still she looks really fucked up, but like you can still see her face beneath it all.
0: Yeah. Do you like the uh, the actual exorcism sequence?
1: I, I do. Yeah. I think it really works well where it's like these two men who are coming at it from very different points of view mm. and who are supposed to be there like to support one another. And I don't mean that like in, in like the way we use that kind of term now, like I'm here to support you. It's like, no, <laughs> y- 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 like
0: handshakes and hugs, act- baby. That's all <laughs> they need.
1: <laughs> right. Like, like Karis actually has a role to play in the exorcism and he does it poorly.
0: Right. Like yeah.
1: he's not good at it. He, he, he doesn't have the responses ready. He sort of freezes up at different moments. And Max von character is kind of a little bit like, I, I like hurry it up. Like you need to get on top of this. This is important without saying it like that. It's just in his attitude of like, what are you doing? Um. So I, I like the interactions between them. I think having Karis in the room is also important because he stands in for the audience and you get yeah. to see him react in, in kind of shock and horror to what he's seeing the same way you are as, as the viewer. Um, and yeah, I think all those the effects still really work, I think. Like yeah, the the the, the pea soup <laughs> just just sort of coming out of her mouth and the the levitation and all of that stuff still really freaks you out when you watch it. It's great.
0: Yeah, and it's so it's so simple. Like most of that stuff is so yeah. simply done. There, a lot of it is the same kind of stuff they do like in magic tricks, like the levitations and stuff like that. It's not it's not 300 million dollar special effects, you know.
1: <clears throat> right. And it's not a portal to hell opens in the bathroom and there's like, uh, you know, countless CGI demons and, and the sky is turning black yeah. and a giant hands reaching down like all the sort of like Marvel <laughs> Disney movie level thing where it has to be like a giant portal. To be fair,
0: um, though, this movie could have been improved by uh, a, a sexy demon lady exploding into blood. <laughs> like in the Pope's Exorcist, <laughs> yeah. Which, if you want to see or
1: Counterpoint, put all the priests on Vespas.
0: There you go. Yeah. If Marin, <laughs> if Marin had rolled up to the the uh, McNeil household on a Vespa instead of in that creepy <laughs> cab.
1: Oh my God! I hope I hope somebody on the internet yeah. has Photoshop skills. Has anybody skills, done that? I
0: don't think anybody's done that. Has put
1: the Russell Crowe on a Vespa outline in the Exorcist poster with the fog.
0: Yeah, that's very good. <laughs> yes. Pope's Exorcist, excellent movie. Highly recommend.
1: That's the double feature everyone should do. Watch watch this this yes. movie, watch The Exorcist, and then watch The Pope's Exorcist. That would be
0: a pretty great palate cleanser, honestly.
1: Seriously, yeah. <clears throat>
0: um, I do think someone who should have gotten an Academy Award for this movie is whoever the lighting guy was, who was... In, uh, In control of lighting the fog from their mouth, the breath light, the breath light is a plus. They do this amazing thing throughout the movie as things get worse and worse. The tone, the color tone, starts to get darker and more blue and more icy. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. you've got this bit at the end where they're the the room is cold and they've got this, they've got one light like off just off. Camera behind Reagan, while um, Marin's kind of on uh, over her, sort of chanting, and just like all of the steam that's coming out of both of their mouths—it's unbelievable. It's so great.
1: Well, yeah, because is, isn't didn't they have to actually just make the room freezing cold?
0: Yes, they chilled the the room down to below thirty degrees, um, or thirty below. I can't remember. I think it was below zero. Because basically, what they would do is they couldn't run the air conditioners and stuff while they were filming, and so they right. would make the room in unbearably cold and then they would shut the AC off and turn all the lights on, which is going to heat the room back up. So eventually they would have to cool it down again. And I understand that CGI is easier or whatever, but it does not look as good. I think CGI fake breath is some of the worst CGI generally. And it's never as good as when you actually do it like this or the way they, they did the same, a similar thing in the thing as well.
1: Yeah, totally. It's just, it just, it's such a hard thing to, to fake that. Yeah. Having, having it, it sucks for the actors having it be like actually negative 15 in there or whatever. And like, you know, Linda Blair's in a nightgown. Right. (laughs) But it looks so good. That end, that ending, the exorcism ceremony itself, like is shot so well.
0: That should be the subtitle of this movie should be the exorcist colon. It sucks for the actors.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, because didn't didn't like everyone get injured on this film?
0: Yeah, a lot of people did. Um, one of the things that comes along with William Friedkin is uh, he's the kind of director who's going to do whatever he has to to get what he needs, for better or worse. And um, w- in this case, involved him firing guns on set to yeah. get realistic reactions out of people uh right. there's a scene the scene where i think it's a, i think it's after the the masturbation scene i always found it weird that they refer to it as masturbation scene cuz it's like i don't know if that's the word i would use for what she's doing but
1: <laughs> yeah i would i would call it genital mutilation yeah, considering yeah. It, she's stabbing herself at the crucifix and she's covered in blood oh i
0: forgot one of the things you find i was going to say the uh the most blasphemous use of the body of christ since the devils
1: <laughs> or oh, is that
0: after this that might be after this i can't remember what year that came out <coughs> um either way uh, i think it's the scene where that scene where reagan slaps chris and she falls to the ground i guess the way they shot that was they had like a harness on ellen Burstyn and, and the, there was a stunt guy or a guy off off camera who was pulling her down to really get her to fall hard mm-hmm. and uh the first time he didn't like it, so he was like, "Give it, you know, give her a really good one this time." And I guess she landed yeah. wrong and like broke her coccyx and injured Oof. her back. And uh, Ray, uh, Linda Blair had a back injury because the scene where she's like going up and down really fast, like slamming up and down. She was yeah, in, she's
1: laying in the bed and 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 her upper half is like flinging forward yeah. and all the way back and then forward and all the way back really fast.
0: She was in like a full like a torso harness and I guess yeah. in between takes the like the the harness got loose so it wasn't super tight and so it was like it it did some real damage to her back I guess that, that in in a manner that I think she still has some issues with.
1: Yeah, poor thing. Jesus.
0: But yeah, it's, it's one of those movies where it's like, it, it doesn't surprise me to hear that stuff because the movie feels like that. You know, it's, it is this vibe that comes through in the finished product that is just uncomfortable and scary. And it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's scary in a way that not a lot of movies are.
1: Yeah. My favorite one of those anecdotes is the one you told me about the, uh, the actual priest. Oh yes. punched In the face. Yes.
0: Father Dyer. <laughs> Uh, at the yeah. end when he's he's giving the last rites to Karis, he, he was not an actor he was an actual priest and so they did the scene once or twice and he just he wasn't getting the emotion and so Friedgen took him aside and these are these, these are his exact words he said I said to him do you do you love me and he's like yeah I love you Bill he's like do you trust me and He goes, yeah I trust you and then he leaned back and slapped him as hard as he could in the face and then he said roll camera and he said go do the scene now and that's the take in the movie is him having just had the shit slapped out of him yeah and he nailed it he got it
1: oh yeah yeah he looks so genuinely distraught and it's like yeah because his friend just hit him in the face
0: yeah it's you know i I, that stuff is so fascinating because like I, i don't know I feel like it's tough to be more outraged by that than the person it happens to. You know what I mean? And if at yeah. the end of the day they're like, "Hey, we got we we did it the way we needed to do it, and it looks great," and it's like, "Well, okay, well, you know." But if you're coming away from it still being like he should not have done that, I was appalled. And it's like, okay, that's probably you probably shouldn't be slapping people <laughs> yeah. on the movie set. Full stop. But I don't know. Movies <laughs> well, are, movies are I, weird. I, I...
1: I'm more bothered by the, like, you know, Ellen Burstyn breaking bones and Linda yeah. Blair having back problems for the rest of her life yeah. from the time she was, like, 15 onwards or, or how maybe she was actually 12 in this movie. Yeah. Um, that kind of stuff. Then I'm like, that's a bridge too far. I also think you probably shouldn't be slapping people, but <laughs> I have a feeling that uh Father Dyer there was, was okay after getting slapped.
0: Yeah. You know, I I'm not going to advocate for... <clears throat> Uh, fewer safety regulations and on, but, on movie sets. However,
1: <laughs>
0: there is just a different feeling when you're watching a movie from like the 70s, even into the 80s, where you can just tell it is a miracle nobody died. <laughs> you know? like, yeah,
1: when you're watching it and you're like, everyone on this film seems genuinely distressed. Yeah, well, it's
0: just like these some of these <laughs> movies where it's like now I feel like you know, even if... A great example of this is they show a lot of these behind-the-scenes things of the Fast and Furious movies now where it's like Uh there's the scene where a car flips up onto its side, smashes through uh, the window of a store and out the other window, rolls over and lands and keeps driving. It's like, okay, yeah, CGI, sure. And then they show you the the behind-the-scenes thing and they actually did it. Like they actually built Mm. a rig that would – you know smash this car through the store flip it over and then you know could drive away or whatever and you see the behind the scenes thing you go oh that's really cool and then you see it in the movie and they've touched it up and smoothed it out so much with computers that it doesn't feel real at all and so even when they do this stuff for real it just doesn't have any weight to it anymore and so when you're watching these movies from the 70s like i've been watching these uh italian crime movies <clears throat> that all have <laughs> car chases in them. And I'm sure I've talked about this yeah. before. Yep. And There's just a s- something about these car chases because you know that they're not faking any of this stuff. They're not using computers. And for, in these movies, right. most of the time, they're not even getting permission. And they're just like hitting the road with a camera. They get it and hopefully don't get arrested. And there's something that's just <laughs> so much more electric about that. Yeah. And I again, I don't want to, advocate for less safety or anything because obviously that's ridiculous but i don't know how you can emulate that feel without doing something for real
1: yeah and i and i think i really like your point about especially in like the cases where they are doing it for real but they've touched it up and smoothed it all out and made it look so clean that you just as a viewer assume that it is cgi because there's none of the the kind of rough edges that would come with it being, like, a real car going through a real window anymore. Um, I think that happens a lot in, like, a lot of the, the Tom Cruise stuff where he, mm. you know, does all his own stunts and they're all insane and da-da-da. But it's become so easy to fake this stuff with the help of computers yeah. that even when you do see it done for real, it feels less impressive because part of your brain is going... Nah, I mean, they probably did CGI to put that in or they, they touched that up. They made that jump look bigger than it was. It's all like kind of computer tricks. I don't know if you can really come back from that.
0: I think the one movie that I've seen in the past, I don't know, 10 years that I, I legitimately felt that level of excitement and this, that sort of, Ooh, this feels dangerous is mad Mm -hmm. max fury road that's the 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 only one that i've seen where it's like this feels like those older movies
1: yeah yeah like the the this this person feels like they are actually getting dragged by a car yeah and
0: i'm sure you know i'm sure there's plenty of tricks in there there's probably a lot more cgi than you think there is but for whatever reason george miller figured out how to make it feel have that same level of tension to it that that a lot of movies uh don't have anymore i love car destruction movies i love car violence we know we know. and so so and so much <laughs> like, of it, I think
1: that in the end that's like ninety percent of the reason we ended up doing most of those Stephen King movies we did for the patreon <laughs> last year <laughs> car movies, car movies, uh,
0: and so like you see the uh, so much of that stuff is c g i and it just doesn't feel you know i think I think that's what it is is like for a long time it was really difficult to fake destroying a car, you know, yeah, but now they can they can do everything now, yeah, anyway. <clears throat> Back to The Exorcist. Uh, what were we talking about?
1: Uh, we were talking about how good the ending Exorcism looked.
0: Yes. Ending Exorcism is great. Um, is there anything else you want to touch on? I, the only other thing I was going to talk about is that uh, there have been a number of sequels to this movie. There's infamously Exorcist 2, which I've never seen. I do want to watch it. I made the mistake when I was younger of any time I <laughs> yes. came across a movie... Uh, of I shot a man in Reno once just to watch him die. No, I, anytime I come across a movie where someone's like, oh, that movie's terrible or this is, oh, this is inf- infamously a terrible movie. I would just uh. go, eh, I don't need to watch this then. I regret that almost every time because mm. there's, I always find something interesting about them. And Exorcist yeah. two is one of those movies that I have yet to go, actually go back and watch. Cause I know it's an infamously bad movie. Um, and it's got, uh, Linda Blair comes back as Reagan. Um, Richard Burton is in it. I I don't even know, really know what it's, what it's about. But, uh, for a long time, the, another movie that was like, oh yeah, this is terrible. Don't even watch it is Exorcist three. And I think most people have come around to realizing that Exorcist three is fucking great.
1: So I have to say, I've, I've never seen two. I only watched 3 like within the last 3 months mm. and I am obsessed with it's it. It's so good.
0: <laughs> like,
1: I don't want to talk too much about it now because I'm tempted to use it as a future wild card because
0: Oh, I think you should, absolutely.
1: It's batshit crazy and it's so great and and I and I just I love it almost as much as I love this movie.
0: That was one of those movies that I found early on in my exploration from a list of like scariest movie moments and if you've seen Mm. the movie you obviously know what moment i'm referencing but uh yes i do uh and so i was i was very happy to watch that and go like this is actually pretty great and it also i watched that very um close and very uh near to when i watched the changeling for the first time which is also a george c scott movie and is also awesome and so it was a back-to-back it was like i had discovered this whole subgenre of george c scott (laughs) demon movies where he's just like kind of nonplussed and unaffected by these ghosts and shit that are that are making his life a living hell it's awesome that's awesome who do you who do you prefer as uh as the cop um Lee, Lee J. Cobb or, or uh, George C. Scott, because it's the same character.
1: Oh, I mean, you got to say George C. Scott. He's just, <clears throat> he's he's so ridiculous and, and so great. I, I love him. Yeah,
0: I guess. So one little bit of interesting trivia, because I can't not bring up Columbo anymore, is that apparently Friedkin. <laughs> it's
1: taken over your whole brain. It really has.
0: Friedkin and Blatty think that Peter Falk's performance as columbo is drawn from lee j cobb playing the uh, kinderman in this movie oh i don't think that's the case mainly because uh my first instinct was that's not the case because the first Colum- columbo was a the first columbo story was a play for, from the late 60s and oh. uh so the character existed and the show had been on the air since 71 i think and so he was out there, yeah. as this character. He's got a beat. However, <clears throat> Blatty on the on his commentary for The Exorcist talks about how when he first when the book was first optioned, which was in like 1970, I think maybe 69, 69 or 70. One of the things that he wrote into his contract was that he would retain the rights to explore a television show starring kinderman because he was so confident that kinderman was going to be like this breakout character sort of this detective who kind of is a little bit plays a little bit uh uh, unassuming and coming off as he doesn't know as much as he actually does and he thinks that Basically, the fact that he wanted to hold on to that so much. Basically, he was saying, like, I wanted to hang on to this thing, and they they let me do it. But then shortly after that, this show Columbo started with a character that was very similar to this character from The Exorcist, that that this time was the book. And uh, I I think it's just one of those coincidences, you know.
1: Yeah, this feels feels like a stretch to me. It's a stretch, yeah. Especially since
0: Peter Falk had been playing that character since... Nineteen sixty nine or whatever, but right, uh
1: yeah. But that is interesting. There is there's definitely parallels there between those characters. That being
0: said, would I love to see Lieutenant Columbo in The Exorcist? Absolutely. Yes. I would love to see how he would handle this. <laughs> um,
1: I feel like that would be the crossover of your dreams.
0: <laughs> the actually the the thing in the movie that is a hundred percent a Columbo move is when Kinderman asks Chris McNeil for an autograph. Because Columbo oh, yeah. does that all the time. Anytime he's he's and working someone lies who's famous, and says it's
1: for his daughter. Yeah.
0: Anytime he's working someone who's famous, he's like very starstruck and always asks for an autograph or something at like the most inopportune time. Or he does this other thing where he tends to ask someone how much something costs, which is really funny. Uh, anyway, oh, excuse me. Join me on Columbo Cal. Uh Yeah, they. Uh, they uh, I mentioned they re-released this in, in two thousand as the exorcist the version you've never seen which had Mm. a lot of stuff cut back into it and i realized as we were watching this last night i don't know if i had watched it since i had seen that version because i very clearly remember the ending being after the mcneils drive away uh, dyer runs into kinderman and they kind of strike up a conversation and kinderman asks him if he wants to go to the movies which is followed oh. through, I believe, in Exorcist Three, right? Isn't he? He's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes. He hangs out with the priest, who I assume is supposed to be the same priest. But
1: yeah, I think I think it is. And yeah, they they go see a movie together, and they, yeah, they they're like bros.
0: Yeah, I believe I think the ending, uh, the alternate ending, spells it out a little bit more, where mm. where Kinderman or maybe Dyer has some dialogue about. You know, uh, good triumphing over evil and blah, 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 blah. And I can understand why they cut it if that's the case because, yeah. like I said, this movie spells out nothing for you. And so having it at the end give you a breakdown of what you just witnessed is not in line with this movie at all. And I, I didn't remember how quickly it cuts because they drive away and and Dyer like yeah. looks down the stairway and then he kind of just turns around and boom, out, done.
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I I think I like the ending the way it is. Yeah. I like it's sort of like this insane thing happened to these unsuspecting people in this kind of rich suburb of DC, and people died because of it, and then it passed. You know that that, it that it was over, and that means the story's over, and it's time to go. And that's it. Yeah,
0: and I noticed this movie's very cut very tight too. Like they don't spend a lot of time hanging around in scenes, they'll, you know. Yeah,
1: it sort of gives you like just the the bare minimum of like what you need to get, what you what you need to see to get what you need to get out of each scene and then we move on.
0: Yeah, because this is about, I think it's just over two hours and I think if you, mm-hmm. once you start uh, languishing in stuff or hanging around in scenes, that runtime balloons pretty quickly, I think. So it's, it's very, it's very, uh, uh, efficient, efficiently cut, efficiently paced, and it's just, it's just a, it's just a great friggin' movie. The music, obviously, is iconic. Yeah. Um, oh, it's so good. Lalo Schifrin, who I believe, I believe he wrote the Mission Impossible theme. Uh, famous composer oh, really? did a score for the movie that Friedkin rejected. Um, uh, in a v- v- very sad story, I guess he and Friedkin were friends. And uh Schifrin wrote this score for the movie that Friedkin just didn't like and didn't think it was gonna work, and they apparently had a mm. big falling out over it, and I think Friedkin said I never talked to him again or something like that, or like they just that was Ooh. just the end of their friendship for unfortunate reasons but uh this oh, that's a yeah, the score they ended up using is a lot of temp music stuff um Friedkin had uh layered in while he was cutting the movie and just kind of kept it. I think Jack Nietzsche does some work on it, um, but of course the standout is Mike Oldfield's "Oldfield's Tubular Bells," which is yes. iconic. I I don't think that there would be, I don't think there would be the theme from Halloween without this because I think they're very similar.
1: Yeah, they definitely are. Yeah,
0: and uh, "Tubular Bells" not is uh, is one of those songs, kind of like uh, "Princes of the Universe," the Queen song from Highlander. That when you actually sit down and listen to the entire song, <laughs> you kind of like nodding your head along to the part you know, and then you go, huh, when it kicks into the next part of the song, which is very much not what you're expecting it to be. It's a very strange song. I mean,
1: I was not expecting that to be the song that you brought up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's, the other, it's the only other one that I have always at the forefront of my mind, because I still remember, because I knew the Princess of the Universe song from Highlander, and it's, it's awesome. And then I listened to the whole track, and it's like <laughs> they kind of ran out of ideas halfway through it, yeah. and it gets really weird and kind of showtoony, and it's just not what you're expecting coming off of the hard rock beginning of of uh, the Highlander soundtrack. But
1: yeah, I'm I'm really glad they didn't get too weird and showtoony in any of the songs in The Exorcist.
0: Yeah, well they they cut it. Tubular bells is <laughs> like cut a it before it does. Yeah, it's a weird kind of experimental electronic music piece sort of and uh they cut it at like right at the perfect point to keep the creepy part but not get the weird stuff yeah and uh the other bit of trivia about tubular bells is it is the record that made virgin records it was virgin records first huge uh release and basically allowed that company to take off and become take off literally and become the uh gigantic corporation that it is today so, yay! The Exorcist placement on the list deserved, or should it be uh, higher, uh, lower, or taken off the list completely?
1: Uh, I, I'm kind of insulted you're even asking. I know. I mean, I think this should be top top ten, definitely. Yeah, top five, probably. Like, I'm 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 willing to be argued that it shouldn't be number one. Mm-hmm. But I think it should be damn close.
0: Just uh, in case anyone needs a refresher, the top ten are A Quiet Place, The Invisible Man from 2020, Night of the Hunter, Nosferatu from 1922, King Kong, Alien, Us, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Get Out, and Psycho. Look,
1: I have nothing against any of those movies. Mm-hmm. But the majority of them, I do not think, belong in the top ten greatest horror movies of
0: all time. No, I. A quiet place being at number ten is unhinged. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the <laughs> well, movie's I, fine. I,
1: think, I understand a quiet place being in there more than the the uh, Invisible Man.
0: Yeah, I would say that as well. Yeah, a Quiet Place and yeah. Invisible Man probably a little bit overhyped in uh, in this particular list yeah um, yeah obviously this is iconic and one of the uh, 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 I mean it's 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 one of like two movies on this list that were nominated for an Oscar you know <clears throat> the other being Silence of the Lambs I think
1: which is also an amazing
0: movie yes Um. yeah unless uh, you have anything else you want to say about the exorcist before we sign off
1: I I mean, I feel like I, I like I know there was an entire podcast series done on just this movie, <laughs> so we I feel like by necessity have just glossed over so many different things and side characters and so much nuance and stuff that I'm sure we did not talk about. We
0: didn't talk about the fact that I'm continuously confused as at the use of the word "cunting." <laughs> I didn't know is it an adjective? It is a is it a verb? I don't know. Uh, Look,
1: I think it's supposed to be an adjective. In this context, we would have to find a a Brit or an Aussie and ask them because I'm not qualified.
0: (laughs) You're not going to make your aunt (laughs) happy until you say the word, okay?
1: (laughs) And that's why I'm not going to say goodnight, folks.
0: (laughs) Anyway, uh, I hit the randomizer button and next up we are getting weird we have number 170 David Cronenberg's Videodrome
1: oh okay that is a tonal shift
0: yes quite a bit (laughs) (laughs) although another movie where at the end they didn't really know what the hell the ending was going to be so similar in that regard
1: (laughs) Uh, which I understand more for Videodrome than I do for this movie because uh yeah yeah
0: Long live the new flesh.
1: That's a weird fucking movie.
0: Um, But yeah, I think that's going to do it for us. I think you're right, though. I think we could... I think you could talk about this for hours and hours if you you wanted to. Absolutely. Yeah. But uh, thank you guys for listening. If you want to help support the show, you can head over to patreon.com slash the Penske file and follow along with us as we go through the Video Nasties list this year. Amanda and I are covering films off the infamous Video Nasties list. In August, we are doing toby hooper's the fun house we've done uh mario Bava's bay of blood we've done possession we've done uh geez uh lucia fulci's the beyond all sorts of good stuff in there so check yeah. that out and uh yeah and if you like comic books i have a comic book on the shelves right now called batman white knight presents generation joker so pick that up be much obliged and oh, uh yeah i think that's i think that's it thank you guys for listening thank you amanda Thank you. We'll see you next time.
1: Bye, everyone.